0: Welcome to or welcome back to another episode of the Magnus and Marcus podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, the head cross country coach at the University of Houston and the author of Science of Running. I'm joined as always by my partner in crime, the head coach of High Performance West, John Marcus. Thanks, Steve. It's
1: good to be back. It's October or almost October. You know what that means. It's apple season. (laughs) You know what apples mean. Apple a day keeps the doctor away, but in this case, you bring an apple to the teach and you get some wisdom. So, I'm we're giving out apples today, apples of wisdom. So, hopefully, everyone will enjoy.
0: Dang, you did. I wasn't sure where you're gonna go with that. So, um, <laughs> apple, apples, wisdom because I had no idea October was apple season. <laughs>
1: it is. It, well, hey, you live in Houston. So there's no seasons. I live in Portland where you got all four. So there yeah, you go. See, <laughs> That's wait, why you're
0: clueless. We have summer and not summer. We're transitioning to not summer right now. So okay. we had a nice 60 degree degree day. So it's almost not summer. Whoa. Whew, I know, cold. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, to get off of talking about apples and the weather, we want to talk about, and you titled this brilliant brilliantly mimicry versus mastery so this topic came about because i i brought up the movie jiro dreams of sushi which i highly recommend for anyone who hasn't seen it or who has it's just an awesome movie and to give you guys a brief background it's about this sushi sushi chef in japan i believe who owns a restaurant in the subway, small little restaurant, fits like 10 people, right? But he is the master at making sushi, and he's been rated, you know, highest rating in the Michelin restaurant ratings there is, and all he does is make sushi. And he's incredibly in demand, and this movie goes through his process and how he's developed it over the You know, probably 60 plus years he's been doing it, maybe 70s, 80 something years old. And he has this high demand of what is good and won't serve anything that he doesn't like and has his apprentice, his apprentice, uh, individuals who take 10, 15 years before he lets them do almost anything. And it's just this wonderful display of mastery and it's mastery in the sense that I like to think of it, in the terms of he's always pursuing it. He's 80-something years old, and he still believes that it's a fun, enjoyable thing to do, and then he's in pursuit of making sushi better. It's not about trying to hit certain standards or trying to make it to a bigger restaurant or to make more money necessarily. He just does it because he loves it, and he loves making sushi better and better and better. And it's an amazing example. So having set that backstage now.
1: And couple that with the very recent Finding Mastery podcast with Uh Anders Erickson, the um, Florida State (sighs) professor that Malcolm Gladwell erroneously quotes as the founder of the 10,000-hour rule. Um, If you haven't listened to that podcast, it's called uh, The Science of Expertise on FindingMastery.net. Highly, highly suggest it. Um, they kind of unpackage a little bit of the incorrect uh, assumptions about ten thousand hours of practice will make you an expert in some field, and actually um, blow up that proportion because it's not that simple. It's you know, and and go into what is deliberate practice, what is a master, you know, how how does a master or an expert define themselves and how do others define them. So worth the 80 minute listen that they have on it.
0: So now our listeners have to watch an 80 minute movie and uh, listen to any 80 minute podcast. We're, we're homework.
1: Yeah. You got homework. We're killing <laughs> that
0: homework left and right here. I love it. <laughs> um i it's funny you mentioned that i actually listened to that i think earlier this week so i'm i'm right there with you and if you haven't listened to that podcast in general finding mastery by michael gervais it's it's a fantastic one um definitely yeah. recommend
1: makes us look like the amateurs we are so yes, it does. <laughs> definitely definitely seek it out i'd say listen to it before you listen to us it's- It's a lot better, (laughs) but we're trying to get better here. And that's what we're doing. We're We're trying
0: trying to That's why it's called finding. We're just at a a low stage of trying to find it. Yes. They've Michael and, you know, he's at a high stage. That guy can interview people like no other. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, All right. So we've gushed about other people doing good stuff. So I guess we should talk about stuff. So let's, let's figure out how to tie this back to running somehow. Right. So, you titled it Mimicry versus Mastery. Why don't we start off by, what do you mean by that?
1: Well, I think there's a very difficult distinction there. And, you know, it's about immaturity versus maturity. So, mimicry is a very immature procedure. And it's a procedure we all, you know, initially um, fall into when we're first learning something. That's, we mimic language, we mimic walking, we mimic... Um, consumption patterns, sleep patterns of our environment, of our parents, you know, of our friends, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's, that's how we come to initially shape who we are is just by the mimicry of looking at a mirror and having that reflection transposed back onto us. However, that is again, like I said, a very immature and very, um, superficial approach, which sets, it it sets the foundation, which is your first step into the uh, exercise of improvement, enhancement, getting better. And then, you know, it gets more difficult. Mastery is a very mature, very long, arduous path, filled with a lot of setbacks, a lot of backslides, a lot of failures, a lot, a lot of failures, (laughs) not a lot of successes. And so, you know, going back to Training, running, um, racing, all those types of things. This, mimicry is easier. It's easier to be like, here's the look, let me fit the look. Oh, here's what other people are doing for a workout, let me do that workout. I saw this workout on a workout Wednesday, we're going to do this one now. Because that's what the best people do, so we're going to mimic what the best people do so we can become the best that we're doing because they know something we don't. And the reality is, mastery is about, first and foremost, knowing thyself and getting to have a better dialogue about who you are as a person what your philosophy is if you're an athlete if you're a coach and then constructing around that some type of procedure using the scientific method to go out and test your philosophy or your theories and and then get that feedback from what's successful and what's a failure however you know steve knows and i know and we've talked about a lot we live in a success obsessed culture where it's all about just do the thing that requires the least amount of work you know sift through all the stuff that's already been done before so i can get the you know um straight dope as they say and be be able to drastically get better and i'm only going to do this if i get better i'm going to count the cost i'm only going to do this activity if you can guarantee me i'll get better but that again falls back into mimicry and it's very shallow and very easy. And most of us fall into those traps from time to time. I know like several younger coaches, or even myself when I was a younger coach, they just kind of took a potpourri of all the best things these different coaches did. Like, oh man, these drills, okay, okay, these workouts, okay, these prescriptions of of stretching activities, okay, these these weight rooms, okay, and this this is what we're gonna do. And it's just like let's layer on as much stuff as we can to complexify it so if we're doing a whole lot of things and you see this a lot of times done in sport in general um you know quick tangent here like Vern gambetta friend mentor um and podcast guests sometimes has often questioned like what the hell is a sports scientist why do we, like what do we, i mean steve's a scientist here he supposedly he's the one who can answer that maybe a little more but, well what is it and why does every professional league team now employ a catalog of these secondary and third fourth string um performance coaches to help the coaching staff better coach the athlete of the 12 NBA players, what have you. And not to say there's not validity there, but, you know, we've increased the complexity about everything. And so it's forced this hyper-specialization on everything. And so we think because it's more complex, it's more sophisticated, but really it's, in my opinion, it's a potpourri of a lot of good things that happen to work that people were aware of and shared and noticed. And the most difficult thing about mimicry is there's no filter you just you do you do the things that worked or it's someone that worked for someone else who had a high degree of success the thing about mastery is there's a really thick filter and when you are on that path you have to know more what not to do and more what not to employ than what to employ you know, i tell a lot of the athletes i work with we're more a sum and more product about what we don't do in training and what we opt intelligently opt not to participate in than the actual physical activity or training, you know, uh, methods or procedures that we do employ. And, and I think that's, you know, to me, the heart of this mimicry versus mastery dialogue.
0: Yeah. You know, it, when you say, Tell that story. Say those things. You threw a lot out there, so I'm not sure what I'm going to cover. Um, but when you say things like mimicry and um, do what to do versus what not to do and having a thin filter versus a thick filter, what it reminds me of is it's the learning process um, of becoming a coach or of becoming whatever you want to become it's the learning process is when you really first start whatever the topic is and you're reading and you're learning you're trying to do all this stuff you know a lot of facts and information but it doesn't it doesn't blend together it doesn't meld together all you do is you see fact here fact here fact here fact here and you have no clue whatsoever how to connect them so you just throw it all together It's kind of like when you first got to college and you wrote that first big research paper and you just figured out everything, all the facts you could. And you're like, Oh crap. Like, I'm just going to throw this all together. And there might be some coherent, like, tiny line that ties it all together. But when you get towards mastery what happens is you start seeing all these little facts but you're zoomed all the way out so you can see the bigger picture and see what connects and what what doesn't and what belongs and what doesn't. So if you're writing that paper again, now instead of all these facts with a thin line kind of holding it together, now you have this thick narrative that's driving the entire paper, right? You have this argument that makes sense and and coalesces together and you just use what facts you need to to make the point. And I think that's the difference between mimicry and mastery to me. And in the coaching sense, it's just as you explained, it's when you're young, you just steal stuff, right? <laughs> you just say, hey, I saw this good team did that workout or this good team did that, that, um, that program and we're going to use that. And then as you find out how that reacts, you start adding and adjusting and all that stuff. And soon enough, your goal is to have this overarching idea, um, that guides your, your training philosophy, your coaching. And once you have that philosophy, then it, then it becomes, Oh, we don't need that workout. I don't, I don't, I don't care if, you know, the number one team in the country did it or the, you know, Kinesia Beckley did it. It doesn't. It doesn't matter to me. It doesn't fit our overarching philosophy. And that's what it is to be a master to me.
1: Well, it's also to know that correlation does not imply necessarily causation, right? Yeah. And that's very critical in coaching and growth and development. Because ultimately that's what we're trying to do as coaches is we're trying to work with some given level of athlete Help them grow and develop in some way, shape, or form, given the, the time we have to work with them. Now, a lot of it is it in an academic setting, and it's a classic setting. So, you know, we treat it, or have treated it, how we treat a class. Like, show up, first day of practice, here's the syllabi, I have the whole year, you know, of training, you know, with this great periodization chart. Here's what we're going to do, boom. You have to mold to the... The course not the course is going to mold to help you and i've noticed especially with a lot of higher level athletes there's a lot of insecurity when there isn't this really definitive plan laid out in place because you know that's the way we educate ourselves is having this plan okay in this six week course or 12 week course or whatever you're going to know all these things however Steve and I are talking offline and he and I are much more interested in the entirety of the ecosystem rather than isolating different parts sporadically throughout it. And so how do you measure if someone's growing and developing? It's depends what matrix you are really emphasizing or can emphasize. Um, You know, like, a good example is Michaela Fricker. She's in her second year working with me, you know, we're starting a little bit earlier with a lot of work. Um, you know, that was not her strength necessarily. So more a weakness type work now, but she's able to do things this year that she could not express or do consistently uh, given this nature of the work this time last year. And I keep reminding her, and I go, Mikhail, you're able to do things and handle the stimulus, handle the stressors, and rebound quickly from them at such a more rapid rate than you've ever been able to do. And you're able to do it more volume of work, you know, heavier weight of work, whatever. There's a lot of different areas of progression there. But I'm always reminding her, like, it does not matter if you're not mentally engaged and focused in stretching yourself and challenging yourself and taking some risks here in practice in the fall because this is the time to really get a lot of not just physical growth, but mental and emotional growth as you prepare for your next season of competition. And so that's been really exciting to see. And just looking around, you know, there's just a different display every practice session about an area of development and growth that's happened within the context of a year. You know, some coaches might only have an athlete for four years at best, you know, maybe longer, maybe much shorter. So you have to figure out how to identify an area of growth that is the most important in that context of that time frame for that athlete. Um, And going back to Michaela, you know, when I started coaching her last year, it was about mid-November, we, you know, agreed to work together and prepare for her outdoor season. And it was just like after a quick assessment of a couple weeks of just general practice and prep and seeing where she was at and just having her express different qualities, like, okay, here's where you're at. We can't fix this right now because the most pressing thing is get you ready to try to run three rounds of the 800 in in early July to give you a shot to make an Olympic team. And so we need to prepare you to express that. And these other things that we want to, that are weaknesses, that are areas of opportunity for you, we really can't or shouldn't invest too much time in it right now because it's going to be at a detriment and we're just going to try to do too many things at once, complexify it, a detriment to that immediate short-term development. But if we work on this short-term development, that has a layering approach that will help springboard you to put you in a good state of being mm-hmm. physically, mentally, and emotionally to then work on this long-term growth area. And so as a coach you you know you need to be able to see the potential progression where the short-term helps enhances the long-term and vice versa. And that is very difficult to do. <laughs> this is hard. And I am by no means an expert at it. I'm much better now than I was two years ago at it because I finally got what mattered most and what my job really was. Is to encourage, inspire, and guide growth and development. I mean, when I was a college coach, younger college coach, I didn't have that framework reference.
0: <laughs> I can, I can, uh, can uh, echo that a little bit. But you know, I, I think in the college environment, especially, if you see that a lot. Especially on I- incoming freshmen, I get, I almost, I do an assessment. I mean, I do a questionnaire that they all have to fill out, giving me their background, and then watch them work out and i I mean the first month or so is just assessing what they have and what they don't have and sometimes you step back and you're like okay like this kid is good but we have a lot of work foundationally to do before he's going to be able to express the fitness that he actually has a good example of that is last year i had a freshman come in who was was pretty talented and Ran, I think around 4:20 um, and 9:20 in in high school, so solid athlete. And he came in, struggled big time in cross country. We had a good team, um, so he was having to run with some big dogs. And even though I was holding him back, like he would, he was driven to try and do the best he could. But he'd he'd crater and run 27 plus minutes for 8K, right? And it was bad. <laughs> Comes around in track season, you start seeing him express some of that fitness. He gets down to, I think, 356, 357 for 1,500. He's starting to show stuff. Then this cross-country season, he's like a new person. And he's like, I don't know what happened last year in cross. Like, I'm running, you know, he came up to me the other day after a race and was like, that was two and a half minutes faster over 8K than I ran last year. And it was a solid race, but I have more in me. And I was like, all right, G, like that's because you're able to express your fitness now. You were still relatively fit last year, but you didn't have the tools to express it. And it was about playing the long game and knowing that, you know, this is going to be hit or miss right now, but we have to do these things to get this kid to be able to express the fitness he has. And I think that's a, um, that's something that you struggle with especially as a young coach and even I struggle with it now as you well you never never not struggle with it but it's it's easy to get someone fit but it's about understanding and showing and getting the fitness out of them and getting them to express in a race that is the difficult thing and that's the hardest thing to do especially in a large group environment I mean, everyone's relatively fit on a college team or else they wouldn't be on a team. But to get everyone to express that fitness, to display it when sometimes they're getting beaten down psychologically in practice because they're used to being the stud and now they're sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth man is a skill. And then diverting a little bit away from that while you were talking, I had a thought while you were talking a little bit about almost multitasking, right? It's when you're looking at mimicry, you're throwing a bunch of things out there at once. And you're saying you're almost looking at what sticks, right? And it's Mm -hmm. trying to mimic all these different things that all these different people do. And you're throwing in all these drills and workouts and long runs and anything you can have, um, anything you can into it. And there was this, great quote in a book i mentioned earlier to you offline called american mania that talked about this this notion this false notion of multitasking that we've kind of come to love and i'm going to quote this real quick uh talking about the american dream the scramble for the Amer- the dream demands a lengthened workday diminished sleep continuous learning unusual energy and a high tolerance for fire- For financial insecurity to be successful is to be a multitasking dynamo we rise early and burn the lights late and it goes on but i love that because it talks about how we have this idea that we have to be this multitasking dynamo we have to have this skill that is awesome at multitasking and being great at every single thing at once and i think Part of this mimicry nation, this flow track workout Wednesday is we want to be great at every single aspect at once. But if you look at mastering a component requires your intense focus or using Erickson's language, your deliberate practice on that one task at one given time, right? We have to be in tune to improve this component and we have to be in focus to improve it. And then once when we're done, we can shut that off and go say, okay, the next time we do a workout or the next time we do something, we're going to be in tune to improve this one component. But we can't have every single thing at one point. And I think that's like this common misunderstanding that arises is that you can develop and build every single component you need at the same time.
1: And I think it stems back to... <clears throat> How we teach science I'm just going back to school now to get my prereqs, so I can get in a you know doctoral program and move and make strides to move on in five years once I quit coaching to another profession and I haven't taken a science class in 15 years <laughs> and I'm like I just hop in I'm like whoa okay you're breaking very very complex things that rely on the The whole on this you know humongous ecosystem into isolated parts and identifying what that cell what this you know area what whatever does, and yet so we think it's there's an isolation to it, but yet once you build on that knowledge, you understand how it all interacts in symphony with each other, and I remember many times as a younger coach athletes would be like all right what's 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 the goal of workout day? oh today is going to be vo2 max or you know, today is going to work on your neuromuscular you know threshold or eight whatever 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 and you know now it's like someone asked me that oh what system are we trying to um work to for today's workout all try work them all because <laughs> that's that's what we're doing you're going to work them all because we are a complete organism that has multi you know functions and a multitude of different systems and so to have the hubris to say we're going to isolate the aerobic metabolism today well that's not the case or we're going to isolate like the VO your your VO2 kinetic or VO2 max today it's like no you might try to do something that's going to enhance or really um, make you stretch a little bit beyond your current capacity or your current threshold for these given systems and how they interplay. But to the hubris, I think, or not really hubris, the, the mimicry or the superficial misunderstanding is, you know, I always give Steve a hard time with the science we running. All science, the scientific method is, it's a procedure of test, fail, and repeat, test, fail, repeat, and have some success, but be able to draw from what does not work. And what a master expert has is they have such deep experience that they go through a series of options very rapidly and come to the correct option much more rapid than the novice or the mi- or the person who mimics. You know, like, Erickson, for example, gives examples of chess. Players And different ranking chess players, they'll very frequently show chess players on a computer some very complex middle game or even end game and say, okay, well, what's the next move to advance you towards a checkmate or advance you towards winning? And the experts will be able to decipher the correct move much more quickly than maybe the sub-experts. They have to think about it a little bit more, go through their checks and balances, you know, kind of see, okay, this will work, that won't work, duh, duh, duh. but the expert can just very rapidly be like, this is the move, and it's not because they found the right move, it's because they went through a catalog of all the wrong moves very quickly, and that's really what we're doing when you're training someone. Like, I, ne- I don't really keep scrupulous notes about the exact workouts we did the exact year before with an athlete. Because it's a dynamic, evolving creature and athlete. And so we're going to come up to different bumps in the roads or you're going to come in, into different enhancements. Now I'll look back on what we, what that athlete might have accomplished with their global volume of work or intensity of work. But more and more, I've actually stopped track of the numbers of a specific session of how fast does this person run 10 times 200 in a session. I've actually stopped keeping track of it because it, it's becoming less and less of a valuable tool and a valuable feedback mechanism versus more of a dialogue of like, how are you feeling? Well, what was your energy level there? Like, how do you perceive that workout went? And then watching how they're moving and seeing their kind of body language, maybe a little bit of their posture mechanics, the things that count and then saying, hey, let's tweak it here, tweak it there. Can you run faster now in this session with less effort? Because now we're making some tweaks you know, to the way you're trying to move here. What? And then can you instill that pattern or remind yourself that down the road in the critical time when it comes to a race, which is also very, very hard to do.
0: Yeah. Well, I think that's a great example of it being the details you pay attention to. <laughs> like on your journey, whether it's coaching – Psychology, teaching, business, whatever it is, on your journey, the details you pay attention to and and place importance on, change and shift over time, and that shouldn't be alarming. That should be good. Like mm-hmm. if you're headed in the right direction, that's a good thing. And to quote another study, there was a a, a research study on climbers, like rock climbers, and what they did is they hooked a camera. Up to their helmet so they could see what they're looking at and then also at their eyes to see where their eyes were glazing or gazing. Sorry. Um, to see how, what kind of information climbers took in and they compared expert climbers and beginner climbers and, and, and what the, the climbers were actually looking for was entirely different. The beginners saw distinct routes that they could take, right? They saw like, oh, this is it. Like I have to go from A hold to B hold to C hold. And this is the way I climb in a very matter of fact uh, linear progression. And if you looked at what the experts were looking at and saw is they weren't, they didn't see the details of the rocks like the beginners would look for very specific details to know if they could get a hold so that they could go from A to B to C, the experts saw patterns. They were looking at a more global view of it. They weren't They weren't scanning for the minute details of the hold and to see if they could fit their hands in. They just knew by the global view of it. So it was a fascinating display of how the details that matter change as we evolve in our understanding and i think that's the same as you just mentioned with coaching as the details that we put emphasis on shift i'm the same i used to i used to track every single workout i used to i have a log of my own workouts for like 8 years straight of every single one for a couple years in there i classified every single you know mile run into a like grouping on like oh is this like threshold work is this vo2 work and then looked at the percentage of that done per week per month per whatever i have all that stuff i have a couple of that data those data sets for athletes that i coached a long time ago but now none of that exists (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, uh-huh. I don't have any of it. I have notes that are written after workouts from people who send who since I coach a lot of pros from afar, I have notes that say, you know, good workout felt smooth or felt good or struggled on this or lost focus or whatever it is, just like a couple keywords that tell me enough information that I know to adjust uh, coming up. I also, for my college kids, I have a couple who, you know, track and log, not what workout they did or how much they did or what intensity they did it at, but how they felt afterwards.
1: (laughs) So, well, the structure changes, you you know, we, we set that structure, we set that elementary structure in that foundation because again, you know, we're just a mirror same same thing with my own personal running training I have all my training logs every day minutes miles everything how long the recovery jog took in between you know mile repeats on the track or whatever everything was logged and tracked and so I'm you know we're not trying to discount that for you know the younger stages of development and learning oh, it's as crucial, a coach I think it, yeah it's it's really important you can't just go shoot from the hip Yep. but we, then you get to relate this back to Juro. You get this mastery about it because when we were younger, we were short on experience but high on study. Now it's the other way around. You know, we are high on, uh, or, or actually now we're we've enhanced both. Now we're high on experience and we're still high on study. And what we're studying is now multidisciplinary because we've really looked long and hard at a lot of valuable information available to us within our discipline. And it's only, you know, got us to a certain threshold and a certain, there's a certain ceiling to it. And so here we have this elementary structure, which is very critical to understand these different physiological systems and these different ways cells, you know, supposedly interact with one another and how we, you know, what inflammation really is and what the nervous tissue does versus, you know, smooth muscle tissue and da, 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 da. But now we're, we're, we're seeing that more from a a, a holistic ecosystem, which then we look at, say, a workout Wednesday and it's like, oh, that's interesting that that program or that coach or that those athletes are doing that. That's kind of cool. I wonder what they're trying to accomplish there. Well, probably trying to accomplish this and that. And like in, you know, a minute you're like, all right, that's fine. Now do you say, oh, we need to run these repeat 2Ks at that exact pace on a grass loop to mimic this because of the best? Like, no, 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 no. You just understand the underlying motivations for that session about how that coach was deciding and those athletes were attempting to stretch their limits to prepare for whatever their highest priority exam was. And again, that's where you always have to work back from as well, you know, um, is what what really are we trying to do? Fitness is one thing versus performance is a, is a much different thing. And I think we, again, mimicry versus mastery. Mastery knows from a training and coaching standpoint, you're preparing people to perform versus mimicry is, oh, I just want to be fit. I just want to run five by a mile at, you know, 450 pace with two minutes rest, and then I'll be ready to go. And it's like, well, yes and no, you might. (laughs) But how many athletes have been able to do that at like, say, the collegiate NCAA level and then go run like a 32-minute 10K cross country because the chips got down and they weren't meant to callous for it and ready to go. So, you know, it's knowing that that's not the direct transfer. The, The miles in, the workouts put in do not directly transfer to performance.
0: Exactly. And I think that gets back to one of my favorite coaching maxims, which my athletes hear too too much, is you can't force fitness. Like you can't force racing. You gotta Mm -hmm. let it, you almost have to let it come to you, right? The reason so many people can do those insane mile repeats in practice and then can't translate it to the race is because they're trying to force their fitness. Mm -hmm. They're, They're trying to prove themselves every day in practice instead of trying to get better, right? And if you look at mastery, it's not about proving yourself because proving yourself is a very ego-driven concept. You're saying, I don't think I can get here or someone else doesn't think I can get here, so I'm going to prove to them or myself that I can so then I can get there. It doesn't work like that. If you're looking at mastery, you're decreasing your ego. You're not tying it to what you know, your end result is, and you're saying, all right, what can I do to get better today? In order to get better today, I'm going to have to do X and Y workout. So I'm going to get it done. You're not proving it. So then when you get to the race, so like, what am I trying to do today? I'm trying to race the best that I can try and get X, Y, and Z out of it. And you're just executing the process. And I think that's a key distinction that so many athletes and coaches and Everybody in life misses.
1: Well, like Henry Rono, for example, in the late 70s when he was in his peak world record shape, when he would set world records by himself, you know, in rainy Seattle Stadium or wherever, you know, and had that streak where he set all those track distance world records in that 80-day span. You know, he was self-trained, even though he ran for Washington State, he trained himself, and he just knew what he had to do to be prepared for the competition. And then he would just go into those competitions just pushing himself, not proclaiming, you know, like say a prefontaine, I'm going to do this today. And then feel like he'd have to prove and live up to his word because he made these very, you know, big political announcements before a race. And then it was like, oh, I got to live up to my expectation I set versus that's mimicry. Mastery is saying I'm going to push myself to my utmost limits for the day. And see where that limit is, and then from that take away a lot of learning, so I can grow my limit to be better and more advanced moving forward. And I mean, as long as long as you're keeping an objective eye, you can really identify areas where there's mimicry going on. It might be a high level mimicry or pseudo mastery versus authentic mastery, and I, that's where like Erickson took contention with. The dumbed down version of the 10,000 hour rule, you know, and even the deliberate practice. Where I always tell athletes, the difference between being delusional and being successful is delusional athletes just think they can do the miles, do the work, and just copy what people did before them, or have this training schedule that's on a nice Excel sheet and just follow it to a T and have no critical feedback from anyone whatsoever. And they'll get this fitness magically that will then transfer and translate to this performance of running this time or what have you. And that's true up to the a low, a lower performance level. You know, I mean, if someone just runs regularly for a month, they'll, and they start from zero, they'll go from not being able to run to being able to run just fine for 20 minutes and hold a conversation. But as you enter into the high-performance realm, if you take and adapt that same approach, you're delusional. You need, we need very honest, immediate critique and failure of feedback or feedback of failure to have rapid improvements as we're ascending more and more up the high-performance mountain. And that's where a coach is very necessary in some way, shape, or form, whether they're there on the track on the day and they're holding you accountable or you're having you know some consistent communication where, again, there's this accountability factor created where it's like, look, this needs to happen. It's uncomfortable. You may fail. But I always remind people, it's like, I don't know if this is possible. You don't know it's possible. But you know one thing I do know? is you can handle it. Why? You've handled everything else in life. That's why you're here still. <laughs> so you might not be able to do it, but you're going to handle it. So just go into it saying if it's a tough session or a big race or whatever, just saying like, I don't know if I can accomplish what my desirable moonshot goal is or what's been asked of me on the, the training you know, objective for the day. But the one thing you do know is you can handle it.
0: Yep. People are, um, people are very hard on themselves sometimes. And I think that is, it, again, it comes back to almost, we have this frag, fragile sense of self-worth, ego, etc. that we can get into at some point. Um, maybe not now, but it drives a lot of things. And I think a lot of behavior is comes out of that. And I think tying it back to, um, Maybe tying it all up since we've been going for 45 minutes. Um, Man, they,
1: the Firing Ma- Mastery podcast does 80, 90-minute
0: pods, Steve. <laughs> well, I mean, if you, if you still want to keep going, we can. But I, I don't have faith that people want to listen to us for 90 minutes because I don't know what I'm talking about for 90 minutes. Um, oh, I
1: I'm just trying to give the people what
0: they want. Y- you know, I mean, it. well, let's take a vote. If If you want longer podcasts... And you want John and I to sit here and talk for longer. Just uh, just tweet at us and um, let us know, and then I'll talk for longer. <laughs> <laughs> we don't know. We don't have any objective feedback. No, yet. we have zero feedback. This so. is just two guys sitting on Skype talking to each other and hoping to God someone listens to it. And then come track. No, it's
1: not. We don't, we're not hoping to God people listen. We're appreciative that we listen, but I don't know. <laughs> It That's was just right. you and me talking, which yeah. oh, we were uh, doing uh, right. before we even started. It, we're just trying to give people insight to the dialogues that we have so, as
0: cheer coaches. So before I turn this off, then and sum it up, why don't we? Why don't we look at mastery from the reason we started this podcast? I like it. So, you know, we we've had these conversations for a long time before we started this podcast, and we just call each other up, and most of the time it was to vent about some coaching thing or. To, um, you know, throw some ideas around and be like, hey, what do you think about this? And then, you know, you threw out the idea and then we sat on it for probably several months, right? Yep. And then we're finally, I was finally like, all right, let's do this podcast thing. And we kept it, as you guys know, entirely simple because we have no expertise on Anything in terms of editing or anything like that. So we kept it entirely simple and just threw it up here with the notion that, Hey, someone's going to find these interesting. But beyond that, it's going to force us to talk every week or two because people expect us to talk. And this is going to force us to discuss and get better as coaches. Um, and evaluate ideas and concepts that maybe we don't ever verbalize, right? And to me, I see these talk times as ways to not rehearse or recite rehearsed work or to discuss as if we have the answers, but I see it as a way to clarify my thought process And to understand your thought process so that I can take something new to the table and continually develop as a coach. And the fact that it's a podcast and people are listening is just the driver needed to make sure that this occurs every 10 days or so instead of us getting self-absorbed in our own life and forgetting to have these things.
1: It's a form of deliberate practice, right? You know, we're exploring concepts and ideas that we're struggled with. You know, even as I am doing something or coaching or going through setting up a coaching program or pattern of training for a week or however long, I come back to a lot of dialogues that we have here in this space or at least when we get off the horn. Um, and shut the podcast down just my own thought about well steve approached it like that or thought this or threw this out okay maybe i'm deficient in this area or like man he brought some some study or some book i never heard of let me go investigate that you know so it's 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 also a very um, transparent and public display of our own finding mastery process and just how slow and bumpy it is because (laughs) That's that's the truth. It's just, it's a slow and bumpy process. And, you know, in the book you referenced earlier, and I think even the Tocqueville quote you've thrown up online the other day, you know, it's this desire to have it very rapidly, to have it be a consumption thing where it's like, all right, I got that immediate dopamine hit because I did it and I got this immediate, you know, feedback or thing from it. And it was just so quick that you know it's going to keep me coming back and again and again and again might be another podcast but that's more the you know neurology of addiction where it's just you know manipulating these chemicals in the brain for addictive qualities versus using them more for good rather than evil let's say for very positive <laughs> habitual activities
0: it, so So just commenting on that for a second and to to bring this and show you how it's not all about being in your specialty. The best one of the best books I've ever read on motivation has been a book on addiction. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because it explains the biology, the neurology of how we get stuck on passionate things and how we get desires. Addiction is just taken to the extreme, right? It's if if you can almost have that sl- slightly less, um, you know, slowed down version <laughs> of addiction with some nice helpings of self control, then you no longer have addiction, but you have a passion, right? Mm-hmm. And if controlled in the right way, then you have a you know what is called in research a harmonious passion, mm-hmm. right? If seen in the right way. So that's why, you know, it's, it's things like that where I think are, if, if I, if we think about, you know, what I'm trying to get across or what we're trying to get across is sometimes I think about myself as a younger coach and think about all the things that I did and all the, the ideas that I had. And like a lot of me is, I wish someone told me like, Hey, like all that science stuff is really good. You need the foundation of it. And all the, all the training stuff is really good. You need the foundation of it. But, you know, throw in a uh, throw in a book or an article that's outside of that world once in a while.
1: <laughs> right. And you just have to take things to their natural conclusion. So, yes. you know, maybe it's like, yeah, you get really involved in this very specialized um, study or pattern of study or way to think about this problem and create a solution in that frame of reference. But again... Mastery, as we've been saying, is about having a multiplicity of solutions available for a given uh, set of problems it's 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 a skill acquisition it's like okay, I can how do I get someone fit? How do I increase their motivation to compete? How do I get them to believe in themselves? You know, how do I overcome okay, this person can only like as you've had Steve, like you've had athletes, well, they only can run on land three days a week, you know, or they're going to just break. They're that fragile for some reason right now. How do I, one, get the most out of the short term, but then, two, build them up for the long term so they can run five days a week without, you know, having excessive breakdown? So, you know, those are the kind of real-life practical questions you have to answer. The, you know, the worst way to answer it is to say, here's this training plan with these paces that I copied and pasted out of a book off the internet, and this is what we're going to do because this is what this respected, successful coach did. And I'm here to tell you, being a successful coach in with a superficial definition of success from having athletes who, you know, working with athletes who win races at whatever level, that just means you got lucky. <laughs> 90% of the time, you got really good people. And the thing is, the art of coaching, the mastery of it, is being able to invest just as much into those athletes that want that investment first and foremost, need that investment, and that might not yield you the coach of the year honors. That might not yield that front of the pack, you know, uh, noticeability versus like it's that more that mid-pack kid or that kid you were just talking about who... You know, ran 27 minutes for 8K and then came back and ran two minutes faster this year. I mean, 25 minute 8K is not going to turn heads, but with that athlete, that is a huge step forward for them. And it shows more of a mastery and patience for process rather than this mimicry for this addiction of immediate
0: success. Exactly. And I think, I, I think maybe a, uh... Tying it together in my own world is is I think I have a nice nice dichotomy in my own coaching life right now. So if you look at the pros I coach, I have Sarah Crouch running Chicago um, next week, right? Uh, Zach Hine running uh, Minneapolis or Minnesota, um, Twin Cities, that one, marathon next week. I've got Sarah Hall and Neely Spence running New York City Marathon in you know four or five weeks. Uh, Natasha Rogers is running Ten mile champs next next week. So a bunch of really fast people who have always been really good getting ready for a really big race. So on one sense, this is the most, I guess, fast people I've ever had training for similar races at the same time, right? And then on the, so on that side, it's really exciting, testing the boundaries and limits of, you know, what really good people can do. But on the other side, on my college men's team, at least my men, women's team's clicking along pretty well. But my college men's team, we're redshirting a number of people. And if you looked at our cross country team from last year to this year, we are fielding an entirely new top seven men's. Group. So entirely new team, essentially. It's because we have our top guy is red shirting and doing some, um, some of the big road races. And then our second best is red shirting and our fourth best is red shirting and our fifth best is coming off of a foot surgery and so forth. So it just so happened that we have an entirely new top seven. And in that top seven, we have. You know, I think it's now four guys who run the 800, right? So we've got four guys who run 153 to 150 flat trying to figure out how to run 8K, mm-hmm. you know, and a bunch of walk-on kids who are like, all right, let's try and go. So in that sense, it's the most demanding, toughest um, cross-country season on the men's side I think I have ever had. Right. Cause I don't have, I don't have my studs to lie back on, fall back on. But in what, in that sense, it's that, but in other sense, it's an amazing challenge that I've had to figure out. And we don't have all the answers at first. Our first meet sucked and now we're to the level where we are okay and we don't suck. We got ninth out of 16 teams instead of near the back at Texas A&M. Right. So. But it's this wonderful process of trying to figure out how to get the most out of guys who are like a ragtag group of misfits trying to run 8K. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, the lessons learned in coaching and in approaching races and in trying to get that, fitness to translate over to racing and approaching the mental game and trying to figure out people's uh mental hang-ups because i have more now because they're just not freakishly talented right it's been uh, both demanding but also incredibly liberating because it's like all right here's our problem like here are the eight guys we have to run. We are not getting any help whatsoever. We have no, you know, we don't have this huge amount of talent to rely on, but we just got to get it done. Mm-hmm. And it, it's situations like that that I think aid you more as a coach than me coaching. Natasha Rogers will probably, well, maybe not Natasha because she's kind of different too, but me coaching a a Sarah Hall will ever give me. Because Sarah, I just have to be, I I have to do my best, but she's been doing this long enough that we have a good idea of what works and what not to do with random misfits of You know, college freshmen who have run the 800 and never run 8K, it's a lot of compressing of that to figure it out really quickly.
1: Well, it also takes away your confirmation bias, too. You know, it's the reality is you're only as good as the Play Doh you have to work with in terms of how you operate in terms of judging your success. And if people judge success by who's winning races or who's the most fit and transferring that to performance, then then you're the then th- that's a very superficial my approach um, way to look at it. Uh, like for example, let's take say a Tara Welling who, you know, had a great spring season after many years down and out for a variety of injury filled or motivation filled reasons and, you know, did well on the roads, did well on the tracks, set some PRs, was competitive, and now has come back off of uh, one of the best years of her life but has just been running awful, you know, last month, and we just shut down her whole season because it's like something else is up. It's not training, it's not this or that. Like Something else is up, and we need to just shut you completely down for a little bit here because if you're having such high states of fatigue, That you can barely like jog in a race, it's not a good sign. So, one could get frustrated and be like, "Oh man, my whole like coaching, you know, competency lies on this national championship athlete who's now just getting waxed." It's like, no, it's not the case. It's a different solution we need to find to help her get back to her best, and that's that's the reality of it. That's the type of coaching ideally I as an athlete or you know many athletes should hope to have. You know, be privy to in their career is someone whose ego is not wrapped up in how well that person performs or doesn't perform, but someone whose ego is wrapped up in how well they help that athlete, you know, shepherd through challenges to some successes and create fond memories and get the most out of themselves possible. And I think a lot of times, again, getting back. To the foundation of this discussion the mimicry is just trying to just take the most superficial items you can from the quote-unquote successful fast people apply them to yourself and hope that it creates the same success for you at some level as it did for that you know person you aspire to and that type of thinking is the exactly the same type of thought of I'm going to buy the LeBron James sneaker or the Steph Curry sneaker and I'm going to be able to dunk like LeBron or shoot three-pointers like Steph Curry. It's like, no, there's absolutely zero. I mean, it goes back to, right, correlation does not imply causation. There is no correlation between wearing their sneakers and being able to play this game at a high level of mastery. There is no correlation between you taking their workouts adjusting them for your, you know, volume and intensity and you being able to run at a high level of mastery. And that is the most difficult thing to get over as a coach. But once you do that, you step to the practice field or the practice track with a much more clear mind. I mean, as we wrap up here, I'll give another personal topic like today Michaela Fricker was doing what we call stairs and hills. We have this uh, inactive volcano in Portland that has a bunch of good soft crushed gravel trails, and uh, all, and also this very long set of stairs that is about, you know, that that rises up in five hundred feet in elevation. So, you know, very well groomed and very difficult. We just go and run them. So it's like run every one for a, a certain number of flights and then run every other one for a certain number of flights. Then we'll do like this 200 meter gradual incline Hill. And then today we finished what we call long stairs, which is about 45 seconds in duration. It's about 10 short little flights that kind of ascend upward. And that one's running like every other foot on the step. So what, You know, I don't care what the distance is. I know about roughly the time it takes to ascend each um, ascent for the the different stairs. You know, Michaela has some familiarity with it because we did a a lot in her preparation phases last year. But today was her first time back. And it's just just run it at this percent perceived effort. Your legs are going to feel jolly because we haven't done a whole lot of, like, fast twitch neural stuff. You're going to get a high degree of acidosis and positive H ion influx. that's going to help buffer your, you know, and your lactate is going to have to like buffer over time now. And she's like, oh, but I'm the strongest I've ever been. I've been able to do, you know, more broken tempos at faster paces and more volumes or I've been doing more volume of running. I've been, you know, she's just come back in a lot of ways that we traditionally measure strength in distance running stronger than ever before but yet we get on to the stair thing which she has not hit in about six seven months and just gets wrecked it's a really difficult challenge for her today and she had several days to rest up for it too and she thought she was gonna just waltz in and crush it and I just told her Michaela this is a very complex stimulus running these stairs and hills in this packaging and these durations and with this type of intensity it may just and it's like to the average person in this, you know, they they a lot of people walk up these stairs or jog up these stairs, and you know, everyone's always like, Whoa, what's she gonna ready for? You make her do this every day, whoa, this is crazy. And I'm like, no, 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 this is a very sophisticated session, but it is a very simple session. Just run up these stairs hard. Run up these hills hard. <laughs> you know, so it's that balance of we know what we want to do, that's gonna be difficult and challenging. And even though she's on her way and getting more proficient and becoming more skilled and developing her her mastery or her craft, we're still going to hit her with things that she can't really do well right now in effort to further refine and further develop and further get her closer to mastery. And that's the more the process and thought process about why one's opting to do that Instead of just saying, well, it's what we did last year and it works, so we're going to do it again. I mean, <laughs> it's there's a lot more subtle thought that goes into that preparation. I think the difficulty is, is to want to sit here and unpackage why we're doing everything that you're doing. But at the end of the day, the very short but profoundly deep answer is we're just trying to make her the best we can help her be. It-
0: and you know, that's a great example of another component that I think of that entails mastery and that's called perspective, right? And I, I think when we get into a memory climate, as we talked about early on, we tend to narrow our focus. And when we get into mastery, we have the ability to both narrow and enlarge, expand our focus. And if you look at athletes, I can, I can almost always tell when they start to get get it when they stop having a near such a narrow focus on i've done this this and this so this should be better or um i have this expectation to do this and if i don't hit my expectation it's not the end of the world because i have layered it with a b and c in terms of workout so it's okay and it's like gaining that perspective is when i really think athletes start to like jump to the ne- to the next level in terms of you know being able to achieve a high le- high degree and level of excellence repeatedly over time um which i think right. Is,
1: you're not counting the cost you're investing
0: yes. in the process exactly exactly so i think that matters a lot but now that we've reached your um bare minimum of <laughs> 70 God. minutes there we go i it, love it it's done Finding Mastery, Michael Gervais. We're coming after you. <laughs> Just not as good sounding or as we're inspired. Polished. By you. We're inspired. We're inspired. <laughs> so this is good stuff. So to wrap it up, I'd basically say you've listened to us for the last seventy minutes or so. Um, hopefully, you gained some insight on mastery, as we mentioned in the podcast. Hit us up on Twitter. Give us some suggestions. Get give us feedback. Um, whatever you need and above all if you really want to know what mastery is about go go watch jiro dreams of sushi that's that's my message i got agreed perfect well thanks a lot for listening guys